Hello and a warm welcome to Econoday Unplugged on Tuesday, the 23rd of March 2021. Mark Penders, stateside, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. The March FOMC meeting saw the Fed sharply upgrade its growth forecasts for the US economy, but at the same time, officials indicated they expect to keep interest rates close to zero until at least 2024. And for some countries, it's looking increasingly important that they do this indeed, because with US yields higher, the 10-year Treasury note last Thursday broke above 1.75% for the first time in 14 months, and a stronger dollar, at least in part responsible for triggering interest rates hikes in Brazil, Russia and Turkey last week. Clearly, some countries are looking over their shoulders very much in the direction of what the Fed might be doing. Since then, yields have generally fallen back again, but some 46% of members just surveyed by the National Association of Business Economists now predict that the Fed will tighten as soon as 2022 due to rising inflation risks. Someone's wrong. So, Mark, whose side mm-hmm. is data coming down on? Uh, well, it's interesting about the um, um, the economists. Uh, that's a higher proportion than what the um, uh, Fed's members see. They're uh, 18. And there's a few, just a handful, um, that are seeing the chance of a rate hike, not so much next year, but then the year after that. Uh, so um, it is in play. But the but the uh, the basic idea is that it's kind of a whipsaw on the data. And you're kind of seeing that right now if you just look at the stock market year over year uh, lapping these easy comparisons. So like the NASDAQ is literally up 100%. Um, and, uh, and you're getting that same, we will be getting that same kind of effect when the March economic data begin to be uh, released. Um, and so you're going to get this. So they, um, up their forecast for that, but then it comes right back down, um, to where originally essentially was before a little tiny, tiny bit, uh, three years out a little bit tiny, uh, higher, but not a fundamental at all kind of a, uh, as Powell put it last week or kept emphasizing it's a transitory um, effect uh, so and Powell's on the, on the um, uh, speaking tour this week or the testimony tour this week as well as Washington and um, uh, and he's you know and he just got through talking at length about the economy so we can pretty much expect that he's going to be saying that um, they'll be supporting, as long as it's uh, it, you know necessary, um, and that the economy still has a way to go uh, before uh, recovery, yet uh, you know there's and he, as he did last week, you know he's likely to stress a lot of important positives about COVID uh, here in the U.S. Vaccinations up for the most part, and um, uh, cases way down, um, and uh, but he's still going to be. And he emphasizes this. There is a, in the U.S. monetary policy, at least at the surface, there is a big demographic uh, progressive um, uh, stress. Uh, and so, until um, uh, the lower wage group, which is being disproportionately hurt by the um, COVID effects and public-facing uh, services, until that group recovers um they're going uh so that's where the focus is right now at the very lagging part of the labor uh, market which will then push back um the moment when they do begin to 
uh, warn everyone that they will be uh, beginning tapering or thinking about uh, raising rates. So I think it's pretty much for right now, uh, you know, status quo for the Fed. Okay. And, uh, you know. Let me ask you about, I saw some stuff today talking about um, some of uh, Joe Biden's advisors talking about uh, giving him a new infrastructure, well, it's a heavy duty infrastructure spending plan from what I could see, which could reach mm -hmm. the best part of three trillion. Surely something like that would have to have an impact on the Fed if it actually comes to fruition. Right. If it actually comes to fruition. And that's going to be at the beginning of um, they're at the beginning of, of, of talking about this uh, plan. So I think that's going to be further down the road. I imagine it's going to be well greeted if we're turning back to the Fed. Powell just has nothing but, you know, lots of very positive comments, not not only about monetary policies and its effect and its success, as he would say, but also the force and uh, timeliness of the fiscal package, not only last year, which was started last year, but also now this new uh, package um, that's in the mail right now, that's being distributed right now, which is going to create another ripple effect inside another ripple effect. Uh, and this is going to be a monthly one. So we were talking about a year on year comparison uh, um, of volatility. Now we're talking about month to month. So that January, which was a big stimulus month in the U.S., retail sales up 5%, you know, everything, uh, consumer stuff, um, you know, th through the roof. Then February, because you're comparing it with January, then it plummets. Now you're going to get the same thing again. You're going to get a March that's going to be um, amped up by these uh, fiscal stimulus, and it has a big effect. And, um, and then you're going to have April and May uh, whatever that effect starts to fade. And so you're going to get this real bumpy, however you look at it. But um, like I said, it, it, people are looking past that. And as far as other fiscal stimulus measures, I'm sure that they will all, as long as people are showing up to the treasury auctions, and we have some runs, a, a heavy a week uh, a schedule there. Mm -hmm. it, as long as uh, the, uh, those go orderly, even though the bid to covers might be historically high, that's okay. Um, it, but if they're orderly auctions and people show up to them, um, then uh, there won't be any interruption in these plans um, for um, as maximum physical, uh, fiscal stimulus to match the, uh, how maximum monetary stimulus is. Okay. Um, round off then from your side. What about uh, this week's numbers? What have got? What have we got to look out for? Well, you know, let's talk about Econoday's Consensus Divergence in Index, which for the U.S. has just been f uh, fumbling through the floor, just uh, at an incredible uh, rate. We had uh, new home sales today that uh, came in below the low estimate. We had existing home sales today, uh, yesterday. And I know they were lower than expected, and I'm just confirming on my calendar here, kind of the calendar, that they indeed were lower than the low estimate. So um, this reading now is uh, at minus 48 for the U.S., and that reading was plus 30, approaching plus 30 just a couple of weeks ago after that big um, February employment report with the, with, I think it was like 349,000, uh, mm -hmm. uh, something like that for payroll growth. And usually... The employment report, which is released at the beginning of the month uh, for the prior month, it's the first big, by far, the, the first big yeah, uh, sure. economic indicator. Usually all the other ones, if that's good, then the, the, the ones that follow, like retail sales, industrial production, uh, housing, all that stuff, they all kind of follow in and, and a good showing, but not this time around. So that so um, as this other data, U.S. data, has unfolded, this our indicator has collapsed. So, Interesting. But, 
yeah, it is interesting that the forecasters have completely missed it. They completely missed the effects that we're just talking about, that these uh, monthly effects, and um, in February, uh, and they uh, uh, underestimated just how badly a lot of these numbers compared against January. Um, and I guess we're going to see the same kind of disruption a- again appear. But what's interesting is the whole band of economists that we cover, and uh, and we, we track twenty in uh, their um, uh, forecasts. They, uh, you know, usually I say only good things about the SAMP, but but, <laughs> but not this time. They're missing Don't it get them completely. Wrong all the time, yeah. <laughs> so, but they're it, uh, at least it's uniform. And yeah. uh, so, but I guess behind all this volatility is basically just wait and see until the dust clears and well, this fiscal I, stimulus takes hold and vaccines take hold. I guess a quick interruption on this. I mean, it's interesting. It's the fact that you've got the, the the key big report, which has sent out completely different signals on the economy from how the individual various other reports are coming. Does that hint that perhaps we could get a downward, a big downward revision to the, the payroll when we get the the update next time? It does. I think there's not a lot of uh, revisions in um, um, the payroll numbers as far as. Um, uh, they're getting the data. Their seasonal adjustments change, and then uh, and that has a significant effect. But I think that's a little bit uh, separate from um, what your question was. But I noticed something interesting in in uh, in your coverage of the UK labor market report, which is mm-hmm. a very difficult report for me to get to get a hold of. But sure, the club, at, yeah. at the <laughs> at the end of it, which and you're talking about um, Akana Day's. Um, Index. You make the interesting thing in in um, uh, the UK's. Uh, in contrast to the US, the UK has been in the 20s, in the plus 20s, and has been beating expectations. And uh, and you make the the comment that it suggests uh, that the expected contraction of first quarter UK GDP uh, may not be as steep as expected, which is an which is an interesting comment. So uh, if the U.S. data is significantly weaker um, than expected right now. Then it, it it would you know it would be reasonable to assume that existing longer term forecasts uh, may not be uh, uh, you know uh, may also or may may be too strong you know. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's also you know, it's consistent with what we're seeing in the bond market now. You know, we did have the big rally in yields back in the last week, but we've seen uh, those yields come off quite significantly over the course of the last several days. And that, of course, is in keeping with outturns of economic numbers, which have been, as you were saying, well below what the market was anticipating. So that certainly should help to cool you know, some of these inflationary um, worries we have in fixed income markets at the moment. But you're right. I mean, the counterpoint to that is from the from the U. UK side uh, for what for over a month or so now really our um, divergence index which looks at the economy proxies the economy as a whole has been suggesting it's been outperforming market expectations and I think ever since the Bank of England came out at what the meeting before the one last week uh, they intimated that they saw UK GDP contracting just over 4% on a quarter on quarter basis in the current quarter. You know, that tends to become automatically the kind of median estimate in the market before we really get any figures coming through. Right. But I think as we've gone through this quarter so far, by and large, the numbers have come in on the strong side. So it really does suggest, I mean, it may not be the case, of course, but it does certainly increase the likelihood that although we'll st- it still looks as if we'll see a contraction in the first quarter total output over here, 
year you know, it won't be as steep uh, as originally anticipated and if that turns out, out to be the case then it should be more good news as far as the pounds concerned well what does that now say for what seemed to be a big concern about the unknown brexit effect and it seemed to be greater than expected in the earlier data uh, coming out of the UK, and also was it also coming out of Germany too, in a, in a mirror form? Um, and what, so, what is it that we should expect Brexit, uh, the first quarter Brexit effects, to be? Um, well, they're going to make interpretation for trade numbers particularly difficult from both sides. I mean, I think last week we talked about, as you as you were sort of um, uh, alluding to, the collapse we saw in some of the UK trade numbers in terms of exports going to the European Union and imports coming out of the European Union. Well, we had the Eurozone figures, their counterpart numbers released back in the last week, and they showed exports from the Eurozone going into the UK down 31.2% on the month um, but exports to non-UK rest of the world up almost five percent and uh, imports from UK down 57.5% and non-UK up 4.1%. So the bottom line to all this is that uh, it seems as if the, the Brexit impact on top of whatever this COVID impact, which is clearly still in, there, in the data somewhere, this Brexit impact has been significant on both sides of the channel. Now, what the net net of it is going to be in terms of implications for GDP at this stage, to be honest, is pretty hard to say. But it's, I guess you would tend to think that, well, in as much that um, UK exports going to the Eurozone is a much bigger share of UK GDP than Eurozone exports going to the UK is of Eurozone GDP. It would should make for some downside bias in terms of uh, you know, in terms of UK GDP, but obviously a lot of other factors involved at the moment. Well, what about the administrative and bureaucratic factors? I mean, are there special seminars being given in London for? professionals to figure this out and, and and is is there any energy on the counterpart in the european side to 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 learn the new rules I think there has been, but I suppose I'm part of the problem at the moment, if we just sort of, you know, roll the clock back a little bit, is that because the whole outturn for Brexit was so uncertain for so long, and initially we didn't know if Brexit was actually going to take place, I say initially, that lasted a long time because there was so much talk about the possibility of a second referendum and the opinion polls are moving in the direction if we do get a second referendum, we might vote to actually remain part of the European Union. So a lot of companies, I think, were kind of, yeah, just well, let's wait a moment and see what the outcome's really going to be before we start making any kind of you know, fundamental shifts in the way we're looking to trade between the two between the two regions. And because this thing rattled on for so long, if you remember, all these talks went right down to the wire. We didn't actually get the sort of a, the agreement come through until December of last year, just before this transition period um, actually ended. It's left companies really just you near know, their hands up in the air in the gas, simply not knowing what they're supposed to be doing and when they finally got the trade deal announced well it's hardly the, you know, the biggest deal in the world and it has meant there's an awful lot of additional paperwork as you say and red tape customs border checks and so on having to be introduced now when that you know, really it comes down to case where a lot of companies simply weren't weren't, weren't ready for mm. it so the governments on both sides of the channel are maintaining well this is just a, you know, a temporary problem as companies become more used to the new trading environment then the changes will be adopted and things will start you know to come through more smoothly but that's going to take a little while so i think it's reasonable to assume that the the monthly trade numbers in particular are going to be very volatile over the well, course of the next several months or so well, just real quickly i mean are the new laws clear i mean are they 
are people saying that this makes sense? Are they people saying uh, we can't figure it out? Or I think the honest answer to that is sort of yes and yes. I think so, by and large, the larger companies, I think, you know, who have the you know, the greater pool of funds to actually invest and make sure all their new administration uh, rules are up and running appropriately, they're probably doing okay. But for the smaller and medium-sized businesses who don't have so much spare cash to you know to throw into this kind of thing, they're struggling at the moment. Um, so it's going to be the smaller companies, which, if anything, you know, are in danger of perhaps you know well. Worst case, obviously, is simply um, disappearing altogether um, or at the very least you know, only building back up to full capacity in terms of what they'd normally be doing you know, in the fullness of time. Before we, we, we were recording, you had mentioned you mentioned um, COVID difficulties in the UK. What yep. or is the vaccination? Uh, uh, fill us in. Yeah, I mean, and this is important, I think, because it, it takes us back to sometimes why um, yeah, the current economic numbers don't always work. And even with regards to we talked about our economic consensus divergence index, um, looking at the US one, as you were talking about, it's quite deep into negative territory now. So it means you know, the US economy is bottom line underperforming expectations. So you expect the dollar to be somewhat weaker. However, the dollar at the moment is having a very good ride against the euro. And part and parcel of that is because of what's happening to the vaccine situation in continental Europe. So the rollout rate there continues to be decidedly slow. That's due to a combination of factors, including, well, the EU Commission, which tried to centralise it, actually put the orders in for the various vaccines. Well, I think it's best part of three months behind the the likes of the UK. Of course, the rollout has been much faster. There's been problems with supply coming out of the actual manufacturers themselves. And also, it seems now there's this, this, what has developed into a vaccine war whereby continental Europe is effectively by the EU Commission telling the UK that they may have to consider banning um, exports of the uh, AstraZeneca um, vaccine which is produced in Belgium um, going from the European Union into the UK simply because the UK is is so far down the vaccination road at the moment compared to what's happening in in continental Europe and that interestingly enough has hit the pound so, you know, coming going full circle on this, um, for so long now, the pound has been riding high on the foreign exchange markets. Mm-hmm. Indeed, it's been perhaps the best performing of the major currencies so far in 2021 because the UK vaccination rollout has been so rapid and particularly mm-hmm. compared to Europe so much faster. But now the mere hint that, well, if we do start seeing a ban on um, exports of vaccines being made in the, on the continent into the UK. Mm. That's going to hit the vaccine rollout in the UK, and all of a sudden we see a little bit of selling of the pound on the back of that. What, now, what does Boris Johnson think of that? I mean, well, I mean do, do you guys say, well, you know, we 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 are way ahead. Let's let's let yeah, our... there is that. I mean, there's all sorts of issues going on here, and I think one of the you know, the, it's it's certainly true to say that the EU Commission was so late in actually getting their act together on this. Uh, part and parcel of it was the fact they wanted to try and centralise it, which I guess you can say is fair enough since we're supposed to be talking about the EU or EU as a whole, um, rather than allowing individual nations to do their own thing. So it did mean that when these um, orders were actually sent in from the EU Commission, they were long behind a lot of other companies. Um, so the UK is, is in a difficult position at the moment. I mean, it's lucky in the sense that it, it it manufactures a lot of its own AstraZeneca in Oxford and around Oxford itself, uh, where the thing was actually put together in the first place. But it also is looking to import a lot coming out of the EU and also out of other parts of the world as well. So it wants to maintain that flow 
of a vaccine to to the best it possibly can. So as I understand it, Boris Johnson is supposed to be having calls with a number of uh, EU leaders during the course of this week to try and make sure that this flow can continue as uninterrupted as possible. Now, exactly how it's going to you know, turn out at the end of the day, we really don't know. But the situation is complicated by the fact that um, a lot of continental European countries were refusing to use the AstraZeneca mm-hmm. vaccine when this report came out of Norway linking it to blood clotting. Mm-hmm. Now, although that appears to have been ruled out now by both the European the European Medical Association itself, as well as I think from your side and certainly from the likes of the UK, the official medical guys over here, it seems that enough damage has been done to consumer confidence or, or would be patient confidence in continental Europe that even though they have vaccines, the AstraZeneca vaccine available for distribution there, a number of people are simply saying we don't want it, we don't trust it, we're going to get blood mm-hmm. clots. Mm-hmm. So you're in this ironic situation whereby the vaccine rollout in the continent is still horribly slow and, and worryingly slow. Mm-hmm. And yet you have stockpiles arising in the likes of France and in Germany because they got this stuff, but they can't actually distribute it because people won't take it. Mm. OK, well, I guess the question I had, though, that's interesting, but in, I guess as a side question, what, what's the level of empathy um, among the, the British populace toward their European unvaccinated comrades? Well, I think, you know, without trying to be inward looking, I think the UK at the moment, because touch word, it, it has performed the vaccine rollout well. It's looking, you know, further down the road to with we start to get the easing of a lockdown at the back end of this month. And then in theory, by pretty well June time, the UK economy is supposed to be as near as damn it, fully open. And there's no way continental Europe's going to be in that kind of situation at that stage. But as Boris Johnson was saying, really, I mean, it's all very well for the UK perhaps to achieve its its end goal to the extent you can do that. Um, but so long as you've got high cases and at the moment it's high and worryingly rising cases of the virus on the continent, you know, that's only a few miles across the English Channel. The risk is that it's going to be imported in some shape or form at some point. Mm-hmm. So it really is a case you need to see as much of the world been vaccinated as possible before you can really feel secure you know, wherever you might be living. Okay, one last thing, and that's Northern Ireland. If, if frictions increase between the EU, EU and UK, what, what does that mean for the North Ireland border? Well, we don't know at this stage. At the moment, I mean, this is something which is still effectively being discussed and still trying to be sorted out. So I'm just to quickly remind people that Northern Ireland um, came out of the European Union along with the rest of the United Kingdom when we had Brexit. However, no one wants to see a border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Um, so across the across the island of Ireland uh, for all the political reasons we've seen in the past. But it's very difficult to maintain an open border there and still allow goods to flow in from what is effectively you know, now a non-EU country, which is Northern uh-huh. Ireland. Um, so there's been a lot of friction about uh, what is currently effectively a now a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. So is that a point of leverage for the EU to get what they want uh, on the vaccine issues? I, I don't think so. They've already made some fundamental errors over that over the course of the last few weeks. So, no, I don't think it is. And I think, to be honest, both sides at this time are trying to downplay some mm. of the political fallout from this as much as they can do. And the bottom line here is it really is a right raw political mess, which was never sorted out in the first place and really was. It was something it wasn't you know, almost an accident waiting to happen. So that really does still very much need to be addressed. 
Okay, um, what I should be saying quickly from my side, as uh, Mark's mentioned, we'll get flash PMIs out this week, which as far as Europe's concerned is, well, amongst the most important numbers of the month. Uh, and just quickly to say that, well, effectively, no big changes inspected that the, the headline composite output index for the Eurozone as a whole, that fell sharply down to 45.3 in last November and has remained below this key 50 growth threshold ever since then. So say still very much in line with the contraction in first quarter GDP, although quite possibly from what our um, economic divergence, consensus divergence indices are telling us, it still may not be particularly sharp. But in any event, it looks like first quarter GDP is still going to be negative. And just quickly going back to the COVID situation, um, as a result of these sharply rising cases in a number of countries, Germany yet again has extended its lockdown. That now runs through to April the 18th. And France, which has avoided introducing a third lockdown, finally succumbed. And that has now introduced a a month-long lockdown in what some 16 areas that's going to affect about 20 21 million French people that came in last Friday and that's going to run for a month so having expected the first quarter to be a bad one and then hopes for the second quarter to start seeing things turn around as the vaccine rollout goes there's now clearly a risk that second quarter GDP in the eurozone is going to be disappointingly weak too with whatever implications that might have of course for ECB policy and indeed fiscal policy as well. And we have some indications in the month of March, uh, anecdotal ones coming uh, with the PMI flashes for March, and that you have France and Germany um, uh, opening in the E and then followed by the Eurozone. Uh, and what I guess what are we where the general consensus is what a continued strength in manufacturing offset by COVID related yeah, exactly weaknesses in services. I'm, yeah, I mean, the headline composite output index, the consensus is at 49.1, so sort of borderline stagnation, if anything, you know, contracting output. But manufacturing up at 57.7, so still a good period for manufacturing. But the key services sector down at 46, so essentially still in recession. So it's still a pretty grim time. And of course, this is this is for March when a lot of these countries have been largely shut down anyway. And the worrying thing now is that you know this shutdown is going to be extended into the second quarter as well. OK, um, before we prattle on for too long, pretty round off a couple of central banks, one from last week, which is very easy as the Bank of England. There was no change there whatsoever in terms of policy, which came as no surprise. But if anything, the B of E was, again, slightly more optimistic about the second half of the year due to surprise, surprise, a vaccine rollout. So, again, that further reduces the likelihood of any additional easing out of the Bank of England. And this week on Thursday, we'll get the Swiss National Bank, where, again, no change is expected. Um, it's interesting looking at performance as ever of what the Swiss francs been doing the foreign exchanges. It's weakened during the course of this year. And so that certainly relaxed some of the pressure on the SMB to come out and ease again. So very much strong expectations. We'll see their key policy rate left at what pretty well the lowest in the world, I think, at minus 0.75 percent. Um, but still, they'll almost certainly come out and say that the currency is too strong, notwithstanding the losses it's made so far during this year. Anything else we should be mentioned? Um, Turkey. I will mention Turkey because it's an interesting one at the moment, although it's not part of the world we normally talk about. 
As mentioned in the intro, they they raised interest rates last week by some 200 basis points. Um, in large part, that was due to these knock-on effects we've had on some of these emerging market um, currencies from the rise in U.S. interest rates. Whereupon um, we saw President Erdogan again sacking his central bank governor, who he appointed not very long ago. I think that's what about the third one he sacked now in a space of uh, not very long. I think it's since about mid-2019. Mid and he's introduced a person, a new central bank governor, who is of his ilk, which means he sees higher interest rates will lead to higher inflation. Now, the Turkish lira plunged over 15 percent on that news. The stock market absolutely disappeared down the plug hole as well. Um, and there's every expectation when we get to the next central bank meeting in April, if not before, the new central bank governor will unwind the 200 basis point hike we saw in interest rates last week. So at the moment, Turkey is in a right royal mess. And given you know, the problem we have with uh, longer dated yields at the moment, if we see them starting to back up again, there well, could well be some nasty contagion effects spilling over from that. Um, and if we see that, then that's clearly going to be good news for the likes of the dollar and the other safe haven currencies as well. Now, Turkey is a bit of an outlier at the moment, but I would suggest it's a country worth keeping an eye on. OK, that is me. Anything else from you, Mark? Um, I guess let me just look at my calendar here and, um, uh, until we get, uh, I guess employment, uh, next, the end of next week, there isn't going to be a lot of, um, of super, we get the core, well, we do get the PCE core price indexes as part of the personal income and outlays on Friday. I don't think that we're going to see any surprises. I think that the core readings in the U.S. have been, you know, the headlines have been up because of energy a little bit. And uh, and then you get to the core readings and they're kind of coming below expectations. In fact, part of the reason that our uh, consensus divergence index for the U.S. is so weak is because of some, some of these uh, core inflation readings. So and you're getting PP, a UK CPI and PPI for February. This is the first read on February. Yep. Um, where are we looking for headline CPI inflation out of the UK? 0.8%. So that's just up a tick from last time. So again, it's more a case of we got these you know, rapidly rising or have been rising inflationary expectations, but not a lot of support from the actual hard data themselves. Yeah. Okay, then, well, let's wrap it up there before this thing goes on far too long. So on behalf of Mark and myself, thanks as ever for listening. Podcast will be back again next week. In the interim, everything you need to know about the key market moving data and events can, of course, be found in Econoday's global economic calendar. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.